Now, at a wedding, you've got friends that attend. John the Baptist said that I am the friend of the bridegroom. You've got the bridegroom, you've got the bride, and you have the wedding clothes. Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast. And what happens to the man that's in there without the proper wedding clothes? He is booted out, he is bound, and he's thrown into the pit of hell where there's gnashing and weeping. What are the proper wedding clothes that you must have to be including in the wedding feast of the Lamb? Take a look. It says, verse 8, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous act of the saints. So what kind of clothes do you have to have? Well, they've got to be white, pure, clean, which means you must be forgiven of all your sin, must be perfect, you must be holy and upright. Well, Bernard, you say that these linens stand for the righteous acts of the saints. Does that mean that these people have worked themselves into salvation, have worked and done something to where now they have a standing invitation, the wedding feast of the Lamb? My answer to you is no. How can I say that? What are the righteous acts of the saints? How can there be any righteous acts of the saints? What must take place first before any of your acts of good works can be acceptable to God the Father? Because Isaiah says all your righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. You must be accepted as a son or a daughter before any of these things can be acceptable before God. What must you do to be accepted? Now here's the key. Let me, let me preach at you here for just a minute. Adam and Eve in the garden. Let's, let's take a whole big sweep. Now you know these things, but let me, let me narrow them down for you. Let me explain them even more so. Man's position from the beginning was to be ruler over the creation. God loved him. God put him down on the earth, made the heavens and the earth as an act of love to his creation. And, you, and he said, you look at him and you see the greatness and the vastness of my love for you. Every time you look at it, you say, God, for me? Yes, for me. I love you this much. He says, but you obey. And the day that you disobey, you will surely die. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, dethroned themselves. They were no longer rulers over the creation. Now the creation rules over them. They put Satan on the throne because Satan wanted God's throne. He couldn't get it. The next best thing is let me rule over the creation. And in order for me to do that, I've got to dethrone the present ruler, which is Adam and Eve. And he accomplished that. But now God has a problem because God made a covenantal promise with Adam that he would rule the creation forever. And he would live forever with God the Father in a perfect relationship. But he also said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die, separated from me spiritually and physically. Now he's got a problem. How can God bring Adam and Eve to their designated, designated mandated end that God had promised in the garden? Because God's justice must be appeased. You follow me? If he says, the day you eat of it, you will die. He cannot go back on that, and he cannot lie, and he cannot make an exception. He cannot say, oh, sorry, I was only kidding. Let me sprinkle my magic woofle dust on you or wave my hand 
and boom, that will make you right before me. That can't happen because God's attributes work symmetrically and he can't work outside of his symmetry. You follow me? You got his love, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, but you also have his justice. And unless the justice of God is satisfied and appeased, he cannot bestow forgiveness or his mercy and his salvation and the inheritance of the planet. Unless the justice of God is appeased, the hands of God's mercies are tied. That's why all other religions won't work. I don't care how many good deeds you do, God's justice must be appeased. What will it take to appease God's justice? Death. And it must be the death, not of blood, of bulls and goats, like the author of Hebrews says. It must be a man. Will any man do? No. Why not? Because every man born of Adam and Eve are what? They are tainted. They are under the curse. They are sinners. So how can a sinner die for his own sin? He can't. It must be a perfect man. It must be a man that possesses righteousness, something that you and I don't have. And it must be a man who can die under the wrath of God and yet live. Anybody here? fit that bill it must be Jesus Christ so now in order for God to make man perfect now that word perfect in the Greek is teleos where we get our word television telephone telegraph the idea is you take a signal and you send it out you transmit it to a designated end God has to make you and I perfect meaning bringing us to a designated end which is ruling over the creation and having perfect fellowship with God. How is God going to bring us to a designated end, make us perfect? Only if his justice is appeased. Only that justice can be appeased through Christ. That is it. When God gave Israel the law, he said, here's my standard. Anybody live up to it? No. Well, that's too bad, because guess what? Every time you break one, you die. Well, God, we can't do that either. He says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to have one guy that's going to be your entire representative, and he's going to come before me, and he's going to give a token, uh, a token act of your attitude towards sin, which is the shed blood of an animal, and I'm going to accept that, maybe, maybe I won't, but it's going to be temporary, and it's going to keep be a continual reminder that you should die because the wages of sin is death, and that I'm going to send Jesus Christ, who will die on the cross and satisfy my attribute of justice, and thus be able to release my forgiveness and salvation and the inheritance and bring man to the designated end of ruling over the planet. You see how all that works? Unless that happens... Man cannot be in the presence of God. When Moses and Elijah was on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke, it tells us what they were talking about. Do you remember what they were talking to Jesus about? It says we were speaking about his, they were speaking about his exodus, his departure, his death. Now, why do you think Moses and Elijah, I shared this with the man on Wednesday, why do you think Moses and Elijah were speaking to Jesus Christ about his death? Had Moses and Elijah been to heaven yet? No, they have not. They went to Abraham's bosom, a holding place for the righteous. 
Could any of the Old Testament saints from Adam forward get into heaven? No, they could not. Why not? Because the justice of God had not yet been appeased, had been satisfied. It says in John 3 that no one's been to heaven except for he, Jesus Christ, who has come down from heaven, and he will return. It says in Hebrews 4 that Jesus Christ is our anchor who goes into the Holy Holies before us. And so why do you think Moses and Elijah were saying, hey, you've got to die. If you don't die, we're in limbo forever. The justice of God must be appeased. Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Now, all false religions will try to get around that fact. But unless the justice of God is appeased, and it has been, it has been satisfied at the cross, now man's responsibility is to accept that fact and that only. And you can add nothing to it. You must now just step back and enjoy it. All other faiths that hold that you can get to heaven apart from the justice of God being satisfied you are lost and you can see why that God made it simple here it is here's the dilemma man's dilemma he cannot satisfy the righteousness of God within himself nor can he do it with any good deed religious system what must take place God must come down and die thus satisfying his justice thus being able to bestow the inheritance and forgiveness that you and I need to be put back into our rightful position, teleos, to be made perfect as rulers over the creation. Living in a world that there is no death, you see nothing bad, hear nothing bad, smell nothing bad, taste nothing bad, or feel nothing bad. It is paradise, paradike, a wall around, totally protected, running around naked like crazy people drinking wine that's flown from the mountains and bringing joy and gladness to your heart. Now, I don't know if we'll be naked. I mean, it says here you got, you got fine linen, but you get the message, right? You go, man, Bernard lost it. All right. You got all that. Let me tell you a story. There's a guy named Dunk Goddess. I gave this illustration back in the 14th century. He believed that Jesus Christ died according to the will of God. Now, the question is, did Jesus Christ die because of the nature of God or because of the will of God? Most of you off the top of your head say, well, because of the will of God. God commanded. It was his will. Well, no. Because if it was the will of God, then he could have willed something else. And Dunn Scott has said, Jesus Christ, and this was a brilliant man, died because of the will of God. And the church looked at Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, where it says, no. Jesus Christ died because of the nature of God, because God can't work outside of his own attributes. He cannot be unsymmetrical. That God's justice demands satisfaction. And so after that point, anybody who believed in getting to heaven, apart from the shed blood of Christ and the justice of God, the nature of God being appeased, was a dunce. That's where you get the word when you call someone a dunce. All right, so any cult out there or false religion that believes that you can get to heaven by your good works and so forth is a dunce. Can you see why Jesus Christ said, I'm the only way? Man's dilemma. He falls short of the glory of God. He cannot satisfy God's justice. Jesus says, here I am. I've come to do your will, O God, in a body that you have prepared for me, Psalm 40. 
And Jesus says, apart from me, you're lost. I'm sorry. I wish it was another way. I wish it could be me sitting on a mountaintop with all these different paths leading up, but it can't be because God's justice must be satisfied, and I'm it. I'm the only show in town. And people say, well, that's narrow. Well, it has to be that way. Because if man thinks that he can win the favor of God and may made perfect, being brought to his designated end without sin and totally forgiven, apart from God's justice being satisfied, he's just plain wrong. And Jesus says, you will die in your sin if you don't accept me as a substitute for you, satisfying the justice of God. You got that? That is it. And that's why all false religion, anything apart from Jesus Christ, satisfying the justice of God and you and I believing that in our hearts, Anything apart from that is heresy. It is a false gospel, and you are gone forever. I wish it was different. God wishes it was different, but he can't work outside his nature. It says that God wishes none to perish, all to be saved, and he does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now, let's go back. Let's take a look. We got a wedding feast, a wedding feast of the Lamb. The proper clothing, you must be pure, holy, and forgiven. Only way? Meeting the righteous requirements of the law. No one can do it. Jesus Christ did. And you and I being in Jesus Christ means that you and I meet the righteous requirements of the law. And that God's justice is satisfied. But only in Christ. Now, what you have is a thousand year honeymoon. You've got a great time of rejoicing. We are Christ's bride. And now you'll see him come down. Here is the second coming of Christ. Watch this. Verse 10, at this, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do it, says, I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Here's what was promised, and John sees it, and he falls on his feet to worship, and the angel says, no, don't do it. Stand on up. He says, you worship God. I am a servant like you. He says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus. Uh, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's probably one of the greatest verses in your Bible. Number one, he uses the human name, Jesus Christ, Jesus, his humanity. He had to come in the flesh. Why? Because it was prophesied from Genesis 3, 15 and on that your entire Old Testament builds upon that verse in anticipation of the Messiah that would come and satisfy the justice of God and put us in the right position. According to God's word, God was pleased to smite him. Now, verse 11 and following. Here it is, the second coming. John says, I saw heaven standing open. This is a great scene, you can imagine. Him standing back and the entire heavens opened. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, who is that? This is not the same white horse in Revelation chapter 6. Where we see the first seal open and a white horse comes out. But this horse in chapter 6, verse 1, is bent on a conquest. I believe that that is the Antichrist. A white horse is a symbol of victory. When a king would go out in battle, he would not be in a white horse. 
be on a regular horse that would fight the battle, and when they paraded back into the city, after the victory, he would ride the white horse. Here, he's on a white horse, and the battle hasn't even begun yet. It shows that victory is his. There'll be no battle. He'll crush them under his feet. Uh, chronologically, this follows chapter 14, where it talks about the harvesting of the earth. That's that event there. Uh, I shouldn't say chronologically. As far as the events go, in chapter 14, verses 14 and following, that's what we're going over now. Chronologically, this follows chapter 18. At the end of the seven-year period, here Christ comes. You got the wedding feast, actual ceremony, if you will, in heaven, and now he's going to come down and establish his kingdom, and the honeymoon will be here in paradise. He's riding a white horse, and his name is called Faithful and True. Now, it's interesting that we've got this text here, especially after we just learned about the faithfulness of Joseph. Despite everything he went through, he was faithful. Despite what his body was telling him, physically what was going on, his circumstances, his intellect, his emotions, he stayed faithful. Jesus Christ, same thing. Why does it say he's faithful? Because he endured the cross. For you and I, he suffered, was beaten, and so forth, but yet he stayed faithful and trusted in God, even to the death. And he is true. There's no sin in him. He's completely upright. It says, with justice he judges and makes war. Now again, the justice of God must be satisfied. All those who do not satisfy the justice of God, what happens? They are destroyed. The Bible's real antithetical. There's no gray, and religion tries to make it gray. You're either on this side of the fence or this side. You're either child of the light or child of the dark. You're either saved or you're lost. There's no gray. Here his justice will now be appeased. He will destroy the wicked because the righteous will come down. Verse 12, his eyes are like blazing fire, which means he's omniscient. No one escapes, and fire is his judgment. We saw that in chapter 1, the description of Christ. And on his head are many crowns. Now, how can you wear many crowns on your head? You'd have them here, and they would just be stacking. It shows that he is the ultimate ruler. He is the great authority. And it says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, I've, I've tried to search all different kinds of commentaries to find out what that means. I don't have a clue. Some say he has a name above all other names. Some say, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, things revealed belong to us and our sons. I'm not sure. Uh... I think maybe it just shows his superiority over all names of all people that have ever been. We'll leave it at that. Verse 13 says he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now what blood is on his robe? You go back to 14, verse 20. When you've got Jesus Christ coming and he judges the wicked, it says that he threw him in verse 19 into the great winepress of God's wrath. In verse 20, it says, they were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press. In Isaiah, I believe it's 61, it talks about actually 63. 
verses 1 through 6. And if we had time, we'd go through all these passages, but just write them down and look. It talks about his garment being dipped in blood. Genesis 49, if you remember, says he will come, say lo'ah, Shiloh, to him whom it belongs. The scepter will not depart from his feet. And it says his garments will be red with wine or blood. But then he'll set up the kingdom and you can tether your donkey to the choicest lion. There'll be so much plenty. Then it says he has a name. His name is the Word of God. Okay, so we're going to see his name, Faithful, True, Word of God, and then we're going to see it, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What do you think it means where it says that his name is the Word of God? John 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. God has revealed him. Who is this? It's Jesus Christ, none other. Joshua chapter 6. When Joshua was walking around, he saw the angel of the Lord. He said, who are you for? He said, neither. I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Here he is. He is the word of God. He is. Uh, everything that has been written over that 1,554-year period that you have in front of you proclaims Christ. Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures diligently, hoping to find salvation. And he says, they speak of me. When he talked to the uh, saints on the road to Emmaus, it says that he tried to explain to them about himself using Moses and the prophets. Okay? He is the word of God. Manifest. Jesus Christ. Verse 14, it says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. Who's that? Well, up a little further... The ones dressed in fine linen are us. We are the bride. We are following Jesus on white horses, every one of us victorious. Verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. This is not the little cleaver, it's the rum fire. It's a huge sword and it's double-edged and it cuts both ways. Uh, like Hebrews 4. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges. The sword brings death. Romans 13, it says the government does not bear the sword for nothing. That's capital punishment. And he uses it to strike down the nations. He will judge them. How? According to their good deeds, will he judge them and hold them up in proportion to what we have done? No. He'll judge them according to the word of God. And faith comes by hearing. And hearing comes by the word of God. How beautiful the feet of those who bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That says, he will rule them with an iron scepter. That's the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. If you remember when Jesus Christ came out and he started reading from Isaiah. And he went down and it talked about that the Messiah would come and he would bring vision to the blind and so forth. And then he stopped reading because the next verse was that he would come and he would bring judgment, and he would rule with an iron scepter. And here it's fulfilled. First coming, he, he came to save and to seek, with the seek and to save that which is lost. Second coming, he comes as a judge. First coming, he was prophet and priest. Second coming, judge and king. It says he treads the winepress of the fury of his wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
The idea of him having it on his thigh is that the strength of a man is his legs. What it says in Ecclesiastes, that God does not delight in the strength of man or the legs of man. Here, here's his strength. What's his strength? That he is king of kings and lord of lords. Well, let me stop there. Let me stop there because we've got to do the membership class. What we'll see, what we'll do next week, he's going to come down and you're going to have the final battle. This is the battle of Armageddon where they're all brought together in Armageddon, mountain of slaughter. We're going to see the false prophet, the false political leader thrown into the lake of fire, and then we're going to have the last eschatological events. I'm going to give you a timeline. You're going to see the thousand-year honeymoon period established. You're going to see Satan bound for a thousand years. We're going to see him released. We're going to see him gather the sinners that are on the earth. You're going to go, wait a minute. I thought God's kingdom was going to be without sin and evil. Come next week. I'll explain it. You're going to see him gather up these sinners to come against the city of Jerusalem, God's going to destroy him, and he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? So don't miss it. Next week. Uh, we got a membership class after this. If you're not a member, come on. It'll take us about two hours. Uh, no special privileges except for that you get to serve, to teach, and so forth. We just want to make sure that you're sound doctrinally and so forth.